All right. It's Jeff Mayhew. It's John Beatty. It's Politics and Parenting, where we talk about politics, but we talk about it differently. John, how are you doing today? I'm doing really well, Jeff. How are you? I made myself some wings and they're a little spicy. So like, you know, like you ever, mm. I'm, I'm old now. So I got like that acid reflex, you know, you get, oh, that's the worst. Yeah. It yeah. goes right through your stomach. <laughs> but yeah, my kids really wanted, uh, wanted daddy to cook. I haven't cooked in a while and, uh, broke out the, uh, the old, uh, wing recipe, made garlic Parmesan, uh, Buffalo wings and like an Asian zing sauce. It was really good, but you know, dad's like, uh, I'm old. <laughs> Do you um do you do the double fry? Will you fry them once and then let them sit and then fry them again? Or are you like a bake them? How do you prepare? So uh, I do a double dredge. Okay, I think the double dredge is important for getting it crispy, and then you do like an extra fry. So it's not that I double fry them, but like it's like ten minutes, and then like I pull them out, kind of shake them, and then put them right back in five more minutes. So I guess it's kind of a double fry, but uh, but yeah, they get nice and crispy. The kids love them so. That's awesome. Yeah, there's this Korean uh, fried chicken chain called Banchan, which oh, yeah. does the double fry. And uh, they're just like, it's unbeatable. Uh, it's yeah. my favorite wings by far. Yeah. So, you know, while I was cooking, I was thinking about something, John. I've been thinking, and I just want to propose you a few few thoughts here. All right. What if I were to tell you that what led us to Civil War was an imbalance of power caused by a manipulation of our representation, the three-fifths compromise, realistically. Um, and that led to bad leaders, which mm -hmm. ultimately led us to the Civil War. And then I've been thinking about this. I'm like, what are we going through right now? Well, since 1911, we capped our house. What did that do? It manipulated our representation. Okay, so what did that do? It created an imbalance of power. Citizen uh, to ratio, uh, citizen to representative ratio has gone from mm -hmm. one in 220,000 to one in 756,000. That has shifted power. That's created an imbalance. And what has that done? It's led to bad leaders. Yeah. Look, right or left, we have bad leaders spread all across the spectrum right now. Does that mean that we're destined to war? Or is there a solution? Well, uh, like anything, when you're driving and you don't change direction, you're you're going to get the destination going to. So is it a chance that we're going to, and I would say, you know, saying we're going to go to war is a big thing, but like, like I would agree with you that we're in the midst of a lot of, of upheaval. Uh, we've got a, an economy that seems to be shifting and changing underneath our feet. And we don't have, we don't have leaders that understand it. And so the, the fact that we've got bad leaders in Washington, we've got a lot of systemic changes happening to the economy and to our day-to-day -day lives uh, it's going to lead to huge problems down the road. And I, you know, I'd, I'd point to this um, bank uh, collapse on Friday, which was really interesting because it was just a couple of like little levers that seemed to get pulled in the wrong direction. And then boom, you've got a bank that in the grand scheme of things isn't too big, but it was running the payroll for a lot of uh, companies out in, in San Francisco. So yeah, I think if we don't change direction, we're in for really bad times. If it's not a war, which I, you know, pray God that doesn't happen, but it's going to be some kind of big social upheaval that's going to be bad for everyone. I can right. guarantee you that. So I've been thinking like, I think that I know this sounds crazy. I think that I think this I think the answer is actually very easy, right? It's a lot of hard work. It's a lot of time, right? But it's actually very it easy. It doesn't sound easy, Jeff. 
<laughs> I mean, I guess like, it's not difficult. It's simple. It's very simple. Think of, think of it like cooking a meal, right? Like yeah. the idea of cooking those wings, what do we have to do? We had to create, like I did this with my kids today. We had to build the dredge. Okay. Mm -hmm. We had to, uh, which means we have to get out all, all the ingredients for that, put it all together. We've got to make the ranch sauce from scratch. We've got to make the buffalo sauce from scratch. We've got to make the Asian zing sauce from scratch. Each one of those has an ingredient, right? And we have to mm -hmm. measure them out and we have to put them together. And you have to fry off your chicken. You have to, you know, uh, we had to make coleslaw. That was one of the sides, right? So we have to make the coleslaw dressing. We've got to shred the cabbage and the carrots and all that. And you do this and you think at the beginning, you're like, man, this is a lot of work. I don't yeah. know if I want to do all this. It seems complicated and hard. But when you break it down in small little steps, it's not really that hard, right? And if you have somebody leading you, good leaders, it's actually very enjoyable to do. You know, something that my son and I like to do together is cook. Um, so thinking about that, I'm like, how can we solve this very large problem? I think the answer is actually very easy. We just try. Right. Like we just, we like, like I tell myself, you follow, you find leaders. Okay. Encourage them to lead and then elect better leaders. And so like, that's where I think what our organization is targeted at, right. Is what we want to do is we want to engage our citizens because ultimately the problem is a manipulation of the representation. So the solution is for the representation to hold the people in charge accountable. And in order to do that, you need the right tools. And at the Madisonian Republicans, like our focus is giving the right tools to our communities so they can elect better leaders or become better leaders. Um, and we wanna be able to do that without costing an arm and a leg because that's part of the problem, right? It's just, it's a wealth barrier. Regular people don't have a chance to govern themselves again. We wanna give it to them through information and, you know, tools yeah and it's not you know not and the leadership is incredibly important like you need a chef in the kitchen who understands what's going on and can uh follow the recipe but i think the recipe is key and i think that's the other thing too like if you read history which and we're, we're trying to um uh, you know you don't have to read as many books as jeff when you come to our meetings uh, <laughs> you know he we're, we're distilling it into sort of the key concepts sort of a recipe that anyone can follow in terms of getting better leadership sort of what people look for historically uh what allows someone to come to power and then like what's the what how do you actually govern when you're in power and how do you make things better and sort of what has worked you know the, the good recipes versus the bad recipes the, the things that haven't worked you know one of the things i notice about leaders that work is leaders that come from humble beginnings right and who's if i were to tell you like who is the most famous leader that comes from humble beginnings who would you say Oh, there's a lot of them. I could say, uh, Barack oh, no, Obama. like okay. the number one. No, no. Oh, no. Oh, number yeah. one humble leader of all time. Uh, it's probably Abraham it's... Lincoln. Oh, Jesus. Oh, Jesus. Eh? <laughs> well, you know, he's, he's, the deck stacked with, he's got the deck stacked with him. It's, it's God, you know. But, it, but I, so like uh, at church this morning. Uh, but that's a good point. Like he picked, he, you know, he is God. He didn't come into a, sort of the Egyptian uh, palaces and stuff. He came into a, a humble carpenter's house. Right. I mean, he, God placed him there. He was like, Hey, I want the, you know, my son to lead these people. I'm not going to put him at the top of the pyramid. I'm going to put mm -hmm. him at the bottom. Right. Cause I want him to lead the people realistically. And that's like, it's, it kind of like solidified my idea of what great leadership comes from. When I heard that story at church this morning, I was like, ah, oh, 
he is trying to tell us something, right? Like he's speaking through us and through the Bible and through all these different people. And he's like, oh, he's trying to tell us something with this. And, um, you know, you look at John Adams, you look at um, Abraham Lincoln, you know, there are, there are a lot of leaders um, that come from humble beginnings and they typically are pretty darn good. I mean, if you look at all of our founders, Alexander Hamilton is like, he's not humble beginning he's like should have never ever survived never had a chance yeah he never had a chance and he made something of his time george george washington was humble beginnings thomas jefferson was a little eh, he was closer to the you know the privileged class but still like just in the time period in like the society that they had they just didn't have a big opulent society so even your upper class at that period of time still wasn't that far away from the people compared to what you have now or what you had Mm -hmm. back then in the crown right Um, and so like, I think that's, that's something that we should focus on, you know, as, as citizens It's like, all right, well, where do these people come from? You know, how far are they from the problem? Where do they live? You know, if you live too far away from the solutions that you're trying to call, uh, the problems you're trying to solve, then you're probably not the best person to be solving them. We should make sure you're running in a district that fits you, you know? Um, and as citizens, we have to hold them accountable be like, Hey, you don't belong running here. Like run somewhere else, run for the Senate, you know, um, let, let one of us run for the spot where we belong, <laughs> you know? No, I, I got that sense um, just walking through the Louvre uh, last week. Um, speaking of, of uh, upper-class opportunities, I mean, like you look <laughs> at the, at the, the jewelry and then the ostentation that the French nobility had. And, and, you know, all I could think was like, this is a, this is a pretty cool stuff, but I could see why people were revolted. Cause if you're, if you don't feel like, um, not for if you don't feel like it but if you know for a fact you're not getting uh you've got huge problems in terms of of um the, the, there's poverty and uh starvation um there's talking about like endless wars that we we talk about now like there were truly endless wars of just like the friend the nobility of, of all these countries fighting with each other bringing people in um the the soldiers ransacking the countryside and stuff and, and affecting everyday citizens like there's big issues that that were happening that the elite at the time probably didn't really feel and didn't understand and right. had nothing to do. Now you can get away with that if there isn't an a sort of an information flow. But if you think about the French Revolution, like that's you look at, you look at your your this country you just helped win their own revolution, um, and then you've got Thomas Jefferson is over there as the envoy, like talking about how great freedom is. <clears throat> you know, you start to get a little jealous and you start to think like we could do better now. The French Revolution was very bloody. Probably, definitely, mistakes were made. But like, that's the kind of um, thing that I think we wanted to avoid on the Madison Republicans is sort of a peaceful change, a peaceful understanding of what the problems are, recognizing that there's always system systemic changes, there's always cycles to these things, and really, what you need is someone uh, in the driver's seat who who understands what's going on and can uh, bring things drive uh, park peacefully, you know, park without hitting anyone. Yeah. <laughs> Right. I mean, yeah, not just to the highest bidder, right? Like just, mm-hmm. just because yeah, the yeah. person can be the loudest person in the room because they can pay for more advertising doesn't mean that what they have to say is actually like valuable, right? Like as individual citizens, we need to be able to recognize that. We need to be able to amplify voices that are thoughtful and, you know, problem solving as opposed to problem causing. Um, and then we need to be able to turn the TV off, turn the social media off, turn it off to the people that are leading us in the wrong way. Just 
it's not, we don't stop arguing with them. Just ignore them, right? Like that's the biggest thing we got to mm-hmm. do. It's like it becomes less profitable if you just stop watching them. You know, it's a it's yeah. a trend wreck. Um, but so like I was wondering, John, what would you say is another like good quality for a leader is that you've noticed through your your study of history? Um, I think it's an ability to listen. Uh, you know, that's not only is it communicating, but it's also understanding the problems that the people underneath, you know, that you represent, that you maybe you don't necessarily represent, but your decisions affect understanding their situation, their context or situation there before a decision gets made. Now, sometimes you make a decision that they don't appreciate, um, but that doesn't mean that uh, you can't uh, still listen to them. People appreciate being listened to. Right. I mean, I, I, I what do you, like, what do you think? So, I mean, one of the things that I noticed the most is like the best leaders are like, they read like madmen and they write. Mm-hmm. So like, they've have to be like, they have to focus in that. Um, James Madison, he read all of history. It seems like, right. He let, he read anything that people would, would go. He, he was writing, he was writing his letters to Jefferson. He was writing letters to, um, you know, the Federalist papers, right. Um, you look mm-hmm. at Lincoln, he would he read a lot. Ronald Reagan read a, read a lot. Teddy Roosevelt read a lot. Teddy Roosevelt was writing books about nature, like as soon as he like was able to like be an adult. Um, I mean, he was writing historical books about the the Navy and John Adams, right? And he deplored Thomas Jefferson, right? <laughs> um and what what that did for them is it allowed them to, by being a student of history. They understood, they were able to layer the problems on top of each other. They were able to see what happened in the past and try to make better decisions for the future. And then the other thing it does for them is it helps them communicate, right? FDR was a reader. And you, if you if you study these people, this is where they excel. James Madison excelled in the art of communication. Now, he is different than the rest of the leaders on the list because his art of communication was to like a small structure in his intellectual uh, circle. That's why I think he mm-hmm. is harder for regulated Americans to grasp his like brilliance than the other leaders. Um, but that's who we had to reach, right? That was his target yeah. market back then. You look at Lincoln, he was a f- masterful communicator. He was able to have these homespun stories that related to people that drew them in. What did Teddy Roosevelt do? He was able to use the bully pulpit, explain problems to the regular everyday citizen. He walked the streets of New York, right? Like, even though Teddy was like born of a higher class society, he understood the value of everyday citizens. And he made sure he put his feet in those shoes and he walked the same walk that they did so he could better lead them. Same thing with FDR. He had the the, uh, fireside chats. And what was the thing about FDR that brought him to the people was his getting polio. Because this guy was super privileged, right? Like, just way privileged. Um. But he gets upper polio. east side, upper west side, something like that. Yeah, he gets polio, and he, um, you know, he goes for treatment, and he kind of connects with all these polio patients. He ends up spending a lot of his time and his money on helping that clinic, you know, build out to help people. Um, and I think what he learns from that is he's able to take all of that knowledge that he's gained from being a student, and learn how to communicate through his his skills that way, and then he's able to take it and communicate it to the American people. Mm-hmm. And that's what makes a really great leader. Um, as citizens, I mean, those are all examples of presidents that are great leaders. I think, you know, where should we have our focus? And I say this all the time is in our 
representation, right? But it doesn't mean we can't find those leaders at a representation level, right? You know, I think what we we need to acknowledge about our system and the greatness and the flaws is it's been really great, but it's been very centralized towards the top. And it's survived off of great leaders, but we just need more of them. Realistically, as society has gotten bigger and bigger and there's more people, we just need more of them. We need more of them at the representative level. So like, mm -hmm. what is our focus at the Madisonian Republicans? It is giving the people the tools to elect better leaders and they should be focusing on their like delegates and their federal represent representations uh, or representatives. And you can find those same qualities in everyday people that can be there, right? And maybe end up that person ends up being president one day, right? But they got to start somewhere. Um, and that, that's what our meeting's about this weekend, right? Is uh, representation. Representation is communication. No, I think that like that's the the wisdom of the crowds in a certain sense is um, you allow people to speak. You'll get different voices, but uh, it's an opportunity to convince other people to come along with you, to sell an idea, to... Uh, eventually, you know, to polish and hone that. And I think that could be what's what's so missing is that you just kind of, you outsource everything to, you know, talk about like the the readers, the leaders that you respect are readers. Um, sorry, my earbud keeps falling out so I can listen to you. <laughs> um, you know, like we, I think we've outsourced so much of that sort of reading to people in, uh, in academia, like sort of, oh, well, you went to Harvard, so you must be really well-educated and really well read. Right. But I think we can all see with the way that we fight about the attendance quotas and stuff. Like you've got students who are basically being, who have the, uh, they've got the numbers, they've got the credentials and stuff, but because they fall into a certain uh, racial category, they, they're not allowed to, they're not given admit, admission. So what does that tell you about the academic standard of an institution? Really, it's about just having the name behind you and then having that uh, 400 years, what is it, Harvard's about 400 years or something like that, That all that credibility behind you, and that's your education that you can kind of uh, use as a bully pulpit. You don't really know anything, you know? Right. Um, I think that that's the that's the, the worst part about it, is that we, we outsource so much of um, our trust to, to people and say, well, they're associated with this institution, so they must be X, Y, or Z, when in reality, that's not the case. But we don't, you know, there's no opportunity to do due diligence because we don't ask them questions, don't hold them to them. We don't expect them to put the, make themselves available. And so it's just a matter of, well, uh, we get stuck with with uh, stodgy leadership. Well, and so that's, that's what we want to focus on this weekend, right, is mm -hmm. our representation and how to ask our representation the right questions, right? So we talk about it all the time. Representation is three things. It's communication, it's power, and it's our responsibility, right? It is how we communicate to power. That's our our represent, representative. It's how we get things done, which makes it our power too. And it's our responsibility. It's our responsibility to hold that representative accountable. So how can we do that? Well, when you're thinking about who to run for, whether at the representative level of the federal government or the delegate level at the state government in Virginia, what you should be doing is looking at, look at your person's website, look at what they're saying to you. Are they telling you how they're going to solve problems or are they pointing the finger at somebody else? Are they pointing the problems out but not giving you any plausible way to solve them? Are they telling you they're going to stand against something or are they telling you how they're going to fix something? Are they giving you the tools and the education so you can help them fix it or are they just asking you for money? These are important questions that we need to ask ourselves. Um, what do you think about that, John? 
I completely agree. So there's a guy running for House of Delegates nearby, and he sent out an email. Um, and uh, Katie asked me, "Oh, you should you should go to this uh, kickoff." Kind of tongue in cheek. Um, but I was like, "Oh no, I know exactly what he stands because he he checks off all these boxes of his. He's got a military background. He's got a family." Uh, I was actually shocked that there wasn't like a small business ownership aspect of there, but because um, that just like, like there's, there's the cliche and cliche and cliche and cliche. Right. And it's basically, you know, you can, because I fit this mold that you've been told is important, you need to elect me. There's nothing else behind it. <clears throat> I know nothing about this guy other than, you know, let me just, he said, the Democrats in, in Richmond are keeping things, are making things worse. And How? it's just like, what are they doing? Yeah, exactly. How are you going to stop them? <laughs> Sorry. Are, you know, and maybe it doesn't have to be. Maybe there are issues that everyone can agree on. Like, are you just going to say, well, you're a Democrat. I can't stand with you at all. Or are you going to say, like, what's important for Virginia? What's important for making things better? Um, there's, uh, I'm, thinking, I'm thinking of, uh, I'm reading this Wall Street Journal article about broadband access in rural areas. And right now, interestingly enough, there's huge fights between um, internet service providers that get federal money to roll out broadband and then the local uh, power companies or big power companies but the power companies with the poles that the utilities are kind of expecting to just rent out you know they're like the poles are going back to a lot of infrastructure are some of them are in need of repair and uh, there's a fight now about who is going to pay for fixing these poles and so the power companies like well the isps have to pay for it because they're the ones who are going to benefit from this and then the the ISPs are like, no, no, the power companies have to pay for it because it's their polls, and they're they're basically getting free lunch. And so like, we're just fighting over this uh, this uh, two two corporations going back to your corporations corporations <laughs> fighting with each other, and we're kind of left out because we we need, for example, in the twenty first century, like we pretty much all agree that internet access is incredibly important for everyone, and it should be available. But we, kids can't get internet access. Uh, Companies can't get internet access. People can't get internet access because you've got big corporations fighting it out to, to figure out who's going to pay to fix a stinking telephone pole. Like right. that's what's important, you know. And it's, I mean, it's maybe not important in Northern Virginia, but there are pockets that don't have internet access. But it's important for Virginia as a whole. Virginia right. has a couple of local electrical cooperatives, but there's a big 800-pound uh, gorilla called Dominion Electricity that donates um, to whatever representatives that things are going to help further its costs like i would say like you know throw that into it in email like i'm going to make electrical rates uh more you know maybe you can't say they're cheaper just because of it but i'm going to make them more um uh predictable so that you as a family aren't hit with uh raising electrical costs as everything else is going up because we have this grid that is uh underserved you know doesn't serve the population of like that's a real issue to run on not like all oh, the democrats let me tell them about the democrats like well, I mean, how are you – so look, the system, like if you really want to understand the system, what is it is the system? It is a system of communication. It's a mm -hmm. system of debate, right? And how do you make the system work? You say what you believe, and you convince other people to come along with you and vote with you, right? So well, that's not the how, are, how are you supposed to do your job as a representative if during the campaign – you make the other team, their name, their team name, if you turn it into a bad word, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's the D word now, right? Yeah. And like, you really think you're going to get somebody to come along with you, even on things that we should agree on that are local issues that affect our homes, our families. Like when you turn them into the enemy, you are, you're, 
restricting your ability to do your job. And like, right. that is something that you should be aware of as a citizen. Like, this isn't just stay home and be like, oh, I'm not going to vote for that guy. No, go out and run against him. Go out and find somebody else to run against him. Or you know what? If they're the only ones on the ticket, show up at their events and hold them accountable. When they get off stage, be like, I don't like what you said. I don't like the fact that you're turning my neighbor, my family into the enemy. I want you to tell me what you're going to do to solve my problems. I want you to tell me how you're going to get that done. And then I want you to be quiet and get off the stage. Don't ask me for money and don't ask me to door knock for you until you're going to do your job, pick up a book and understand what's going on. Sorry, I got a little like heated there. Tell me how you really feel, Jeff. Like I was, yeah, sorry. Uh, I guess just watching bad leadership from up close is hard. <laughs> I'm triggered. No, I mean, like that's that's the, the amazing thing about um, humans. Like I went to this talk and um, what makes us human is that we strive for perfection. Like we understand that there are deficiencies, but we want to make things better. Like there's deficiencies in our day-to-day lives. And so we try to... Yeah maybe find another job. We try to do better at our job. We try to have a better house for our family, like material things like that. But there's also just like, we understand like society is broken. And for example, going back to polio, like people get polio. Maybe I can use my resources to help children with polio. There's people with poverty. Maybe I can use my resources to help people with poverty. There's um, families that are being hurt by inflation. Like that's the the key Republican talking point is that the Biden inflation is, is messing everything up. But like, what are you going to do about it? Like, how are you actually going to make it better? You know, my grocery bill goes up by a hundred bucks every month and 200 bucks every month. And it's, it affects everything else that I can do. Um, you know, and like, how are you gonna actually going to make that better? Like, what do you understand enough of the economy in order to, to come back and say like, Oh yeah, this is the things that we could, we could tweak. We could um, maybe pull some of the money out of the, the system, you know, have a little bit of a deflationary effect to help everyone. Like, you know, sure. It will, it will, it may hurt some people, um, you know, there'll be some people that will suffer because of that, but in, in the grand scheme of things, it's better for more people if you can slow slow inflate inflation. Like I, I think you like that. You know the best things. way to do that? Lower the minimum wage. The the best way to to do that is to lower the minimum wage. If you lower the minimum wage, you can now create more competition in the marketplace. You can allow smaller businesses to grow faster, right? Because who are the ones that raise minimum wage? Did the government raise minimum wage? Or did big business raise minimum wage? I'll tell you, why, you know, you know why did they raise minimum wage, right? And if you're a small business owner, you should know. I mean, I'm a small business owner because that made us raise our pay, right? And mm-hmm. we don't have like the massive backing that you do. So now like our prices go up that are already, you know, struggling to compete. Who eats that cost? Well, it's the business owner right? It's his ability to buy a new equipment. It's his ability to um, hire more staff. So if you lower the minimum wage, right? Now what's going to happen is big businesses are going to start to lower their pay too um, in the, in the entry-level jobs. You're going to create actual entry-level job positions again, because right now you don't because you've raised it so high. Um, I, I have a small business. There's no reason I can't pay a high school kid $10 an hour to fold shirts. If that's their mm-hmm. job, like why can't I pay him $10 an hour? It's absolutely absurd. Um, it doesn't have, like you could say, it doesn't have to be a full-time job either. It's like they come to after school for a couple hours. Like that's a great job to start out of high school. But but you can't do that because every yeah. high school kid wants to work at Target for $15 an hour and they don't really do anything there. They're just eating up pay. They're hiding in the halls. Like I literally email our uh, interview kids and they're like, they'll tell me that. They're like, yeah, I just, it's just easier to work there. This seems hard, right? So like you, 
and it's it's not to say that those kids would come and necessarily work for me, right? But by leveling out that pay, now I can pay higher and it means more in the marketplace now, right? Mm -hmm. You know, if you're paying the kid at Target $8 an hour um, as opposed to 15, now they're the $15 an hour at a place like mine has more value, right? Mm -hmm. And so I'm able to have better staff, better labor. I'm able to grow my business and help my local economy more. We're not dependent on big corporation to run things. And what do you have? You have a deflationary period, right? Because by lowering pay, you're lowering the cost of goods realistically. And you're also creating competition all at the same time. So you're going to be able to create more jobs, create more local revenue, create more tax revenue on top of that. Um, I think it's the easiest way to get out of this bubble that we've created, right? Is not to pop the bubble, but to let the bubble slowly settle down. Yeah. And then we will start to create it again. I mean, that's just the way things work. <laughs> right. But it's, it's, it creates with, with people can understand. I mean, like, so the whole thing with the minimum wage, going back to like, who's pushing for that? It's the CEO of Panera. He, he wants a higher minimum wage so that he can justify paying for robots in order to take people's wage. So it's actually, not only is it, is hurting, um, small businesses, but it's actually providing for fewer job opportunities for people because it's more expensive. Like you said, it's more expensive to hire. And then they're just going to hire robots because, well, if I'm going to pay 80,000 for a person or I can pay 60,000 for a robot, I'm going to pay 60,000 for a robot. Right. And so what are they doing? They're replacing the labor market, right? Like mm -hmm. their whole focus is jack the price up, uh, corner the market, uh, pay for this new technology that we want to invest in so we can fire all these people, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, all the new drivers that Amazon hired over the COVID period, right? With all the bonuses they paid and the, and the overtime and stuff. And they're like openly trying to replace those jobs. The people that are moving there are moving there on a short-term basis. You have, excuse me, you have to think long-term as a citizen. You have to think long-term as, you know, for getting a job. And if the place that you're working for is trying to replace your job, maybe that's not the place you should be working for, right? Like, do they really value you? <laughs> no, that's the whole, um, Uber's evaluation is based on the fact that they were going to invest billions of dollars into a self-driving vehicle so that they could replace their entire driver fleet. So they built this whole network on people that would come and work as gig workers. They said, oh, gig workers are so great. We love gig workers. But that's their right hand, and then their left hand is going and spending billions of dollars trying to build out an autonomous driving fleet so that they can replace all the gig workers. <laughs> so, like, it's just, you know, I, I think, it, you know, you need leaders to understand that. That's Well, that's yeah, you need leaders who understand that. We, we got a little off track of our uh, representation uh, talk, but, I mean, it is important because you need to be able to communicate that. You need somebody communicating it with you, right? Mm -hmm. This needs to be a topic of discussion amongst your community. Um, and what we find when we look at our campaign websites of the people running for local office, we find a bunch of rhetoric. That's it, right? That's a bunch it. of empty promises and uh, questions about donations and volunteering. Um, and it's like, okay, cool. You want my money. You want me to work for you. What are you going to do for me, right? <laughs> That's what every citizen realistically wants, right? They're going to text you and ask for another donation once you donate. That's what they want. Well, and you know, like I, that's the thing that drives me nuts. And we had this in our, uh, we had that data collection when we ran for office, right? The primary, mm -hmm. if you, yeah. if you tried to vote in the Republican primary, the Republican party data collected you, right? They made you fill out and sign a waiver. 
um, that you are a pledge that you would support the whoever the nominee was by voting. You were pledging that by that vote, you would vote for whoever in the in the general election, which is like so icky to ask. It's so like authoritarian and like a manipulation of people to do in the first place. So whoever was in charge of that at District 10, shame on you, number one. Uh, number two, what did they really want that for? They wanted your email address and phone number so they yeah. could text you about Nikki Haley running for president, right? Like mm -hmm. that's why they want it. Because if you voted, I'm sure you're getting those text messages, right? You're getting, uh, and you got them when uh, Yesley was running for running for office. You just, you get them constantly. Um, and then they bombard you with emails. Like I'm on the email list for every single delegate running for Republicans in the state of Virginia, and I didn't sign up for them. Right. Everybody running for school board, everything is coming through my email box now and they're not even in my district. So they're like overloading me with information simply mm -hmm. because they collected it. They put it into a, a database and they're just giving it away or most likely they're probably selling it. I don't know. But like somebody's getting that information. It's a it's a quid pro quo. So you and this is the way it works in campaign finance. If you were to just give someone a list, that would be a donation. But if you swap lists. It's just a quid pro quo and there's no monetary. So that's what's going on. And that's how you get on like a, just random lists all over because someone swaps lists and then someone else swaps lists. And then by the, by the time of the sun sets, you're on a, a thousand more lists. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, and that like goes back is like, what can you do as a citizen? And that mm -hmm. is hold these people accountable. Yeah. It, it, listen to what they're saying. And then let them know what they're saying. Speak it back to them. Be like, hey, all you said is divisive things. Hey, all you said were problems. How are you going to fix this problem? And then don't let them get off stage. Like make them answer your question. And when they can't, <laughs> don't vote for them and I'll find somebody else to vote for. Or you know what the great part is, is there are a lot of people running for office who probably could who probably could answer these problems, right? But they actually say the other things because they want to win and they think yeah. it's their only way to win. So like as citizens, if you provide the environment for good candidates to exist, then good candidates will exist. Yeah, that's a good point. I, and I, you know, as I always said, when I was running, people would congratulate me on running for office and I say, it's easy. You just file some paperwork and ask people to vote for you. So if you're unhappy with who's running your district, just file some paperwork and run against them. It's it's not a lot. And then um, and then the, the next thing someone will say, well, you got to start asking all your friends and family for donations. And, um, you know, I'll let that, you know, you could figure that, you can solve that problem in terms of what, what you're going to bring to it. But like, you know, it is just a matter of like, again, again, like why do people ask for donations? Because it's just trying to, make it easier well they think it's going to make it easier to reach out to people but really you know, like uh, you just you door knock and you go out to events and you i think this idea of sitting in a in a public place and trying to talk to people i think is key um and i i think that like that's just that's the way it's going to have to be in the future especially with the way social media is and they, they're trying to shy away from politics and stuff so that's not an avenue anymore not that it ever really was but i think some people got successful and so we all think it's important um, right but it you know like you do and this is something I struggle with, um, being kind of shy, like you do have to put yourself out there and you have to put yourself on people's doorsteps in front of them and be like, do you know there's an election? Do you know who's running? I'm running. I'm one of those people. Let me <laughs> tell you what I'm running on. Like, I think that that's, that's all it takes. Yeah. I mean, and yeah, that's hard. I mean, I, I went door knocking <clears throat> yesterday. I sent my kids door knocking today. Um, 
And so like, yeah, it is a really difficult thing. And I think it's even more difficult post COVID because like nobody just like used to people coming to their house anymore, except yeah. for the, yeah. guy. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so if people want to help and they're like, all right, I got to learn government. I got to learn mm -hmm. about representation. What if I want to like help help now, but I don't have, like, I'm not doing any of those. John, is there anything that like people can do to like help us out? Well, speaking of how important social media may or may not be, we, we do need some help with the social media aspect of the Madison Republicans. If you like to tweet, if you like to uh, press that like button, you know, you can help us out on that. Uh, we need people who have sort of a business acumen and, and not just like uh, necessarily soliciting donations, but in terms of like managing a business, like, you know, that's, that can be its own full-time job. Uh, right. You and I both have full-time jobs. And so, and we're trying to do the podcast. We're trying to do the, we do our own reading and research and, and outreach and stuff. Um, you know, we need education is, uh, someone who's a teacher, you know, like, and works in education, <laughs> like it's, it's incredibly difficult and expensive in terms of time and effort. And, you know, if, if people want to help us with that, where they dive into certain areas and they say like, this is what I've got back. Like, uh, you gave Craig a, a job of looking into corporations. Um, and he sort of went into there and figured out like, you know, kind of the crux of like, what is a corporation? Where does it come from? And that's hours and hours of research that, uh, you know, you were able to, leverage someone else's um, interests and talents and abilities in order to do that it's like if you've got ideas areas that are that that sort of um you know you think you can actually like come help us do some research do some reading and then right. uh, you can come you can come teach at one of our events um right. speaking of events you know we we need to like we, it, running events is its own little thing like right. the the details that go into that if you want to help us put on our our monthly events if you want to help us sort of going back to like uh, beating the bushes, like getting people to um, have sort of events in their home. Like I'm, right. I think like someone who can help with that, with just the, the details around that logistics of that. Like it's, it's one thing to say like, yeah, we'll have a meet and greet on this day. And it's another thing to say, like, what does that mean? Like, do we have space? Do we have food? Do we have uh, a guest list? Yeah. I mean, I sent my kids door knocking today and I told them knock on the doors, tell them what we're doing and ask them if they can spare 20 minutes for dad to talk to them. And, uh, you know, I sent them to my neighbor's house I, and I said, anybody that wants to have a meeting, um, you know, get their phone number. I'll call and set up a time with them to come over. And I said, give them one of these packets. It's our Republic packet from last month, right? Like show them that like, this is serious. This is real. Yeah. Like, we're not messing around. Um, and you know, it, we can make it as comfortable as possible, right? Like, and, and, and having, People on our team, there's there's five of us right now, right? Mm -hmm. uh, five of us right now. And, and you mentioned like the work. I mean, everybody has helped build out these classes, right? Every single person in this group has helped build or write something for these classes. Um, the thing that Craig did is like a piece that I'm working on for Citizens United and the First Amendment. And so like that was really important. Individual rights plays a factor versus corp corporate rights. And it's great to have like that teammate to be able to carry that load for me because like like you said, we got full-time jobs. We got, we got big families, right? Like we're, we're struggling with time here, but we do think it's really important. We're trying to help our community. Um, you know, events coordinator, social media coordinator. Um, basically I want a CEO. I need a business manager realistically. I mean, it, they're volunteer positions, you know, the way that I look at the, the problem that we have, it's a labor versus capital. You know, everything is a labor versus capital problem, um, whether it's in business or government. Um, right now, the capital has the advantage. I mean, we have somebody, I think, do you know how much you get paid for a delegate um, to run or to like in the state of Virginia? 
I want to say it's fourteen thousand dollars a year. Okay, I think it's seventeen, but that's is it okay? Maybe more confident. Just for inflation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, think about this. Like, we have people that are running for office as delegates who are donating over twenty thousand dollars to their own campaign just so they can run for office when they're only going to get paid seventeen thousand mm-hmm. dollars. That's a wealth barrier, right? Like, right. We, that's that's a that's a that's a capital. That means capital can run for office, labor can't. How do you counteract capital? You devalue your labor and you work harder. So we, as citizens, have to work for free. We have to create political organizations and work for free for them. And um, you know how we can counterbalance that is having more people work for us than them, and we just sharing the load, right? So like, it's a part-time gig, but. You're, it's something that we need people that are committed to do that really want to make change. Um, so, like I said, events coordinator, volunteer coordinator, uh, business manager, um, education director. I've I've taken that role myself as far as writing the classes, but we still need people on the education team. We need a policy leader. We need um, people on the policy team. You know, there's lots of positions. We should post them. We'll post them in the uh, in the show notes as well. And then, mm-hmm. so if you're interested reach out. Like, let's have a conversation. Like, you don't have to make a commitment. Come learn about what we're doing and see if it's the right fit for you, right? It's got to be the right fit for us too. Like, we got to be able to mesh and work together. Um, But I've met so many people over the last couple of years, and I can tell you, like, anyone's capable of doing all of this, right? As long as you've got the right team around you to help guide you in the ways that you need to go, and it's the thing that you love to do, right? If you're, you know, an artistic person, you want to be, you know, maybe a designer or something for literature, like you can be a part of that. Um, If it's, I was talking to a friend at dinner the other night and he was talking about how he liked three jobs, but he was like, they were all things that I love to do. So it was like a labor of love, right? There are all things in this business that will fit somebody's labor of love, you know? And if you want to do more, you want to help your community, you want to help your country realistically, maybe help us out, you know, like- (laughs) We're worth your time. We promise. I mean, yeah, we're trying, right? Like, uh, and like I said, you know, give people the tools, give people the opportunity, um, give them the recipe, right? We can bring them back mm-hmm. to that cooking. <laughs> yeah. From earlier. That's right. Yeah. It's a, it's all the ingredients that come together. And, um, you know, I think we've got a good recipe with the Madison Republicans and, you know, the more ingredients we can bring to it, the, um, and the more, uh, I think in this case, the more chefs, the better. Right. Right. Absolutely. Oh man. Well, that was a good, uh, was a good podcast there, John. What do you think? That was good. It's good. I'm excited for our meeting on Saturday. I'll be, uh, disappearing into my laptop for the next like 14 hours, writing all the literature that's March March 18th people in my head, but haven't put onto a uh, computer yet because, uh, you know, let's face it. I'm a procrastinator. I, (laughs) I, I'm like, I'm almost, um, a procrastinator and a perfectionist, which means I never want to start anything because I know that I'll disappear until it's perfect. And like, I won't be able to stop. And that's not really great for my family sometimes. So I'm like, when can I do it? Late at night on a Sunday when everybody's asleep. <laughs> um, speaking of, I don't know if we want to go to the, the self-help, but one thing I've been trying to do is like, if I, there's something I really want to do. I just said like, I'm just going to do 15 minutes. If I just set a timer for 15 minutes and I just do it. And then it's not as it's not as big when the deadline comes and you're still not done. But like it, it's amazing what you can get done with every day with just 15 minutes doing one particular thing. Um, so that's that's my uh, self help advice. Yeah, may or may not be work for you. 
Well, no. So, I mean, I do do that. Um, I guess the way that I work is I work inside my head first and then I put it on paper. So like I'll do 15 minutes. I've been doing it since the principal's first conference um, where I'll do 15 minutes of like, what is my representation of is communication like going to be? And I've already made a video for this. And I already have like a bunch of slides that I made, you know, a month ago. And then it's like, all right, how am I going to connect this to people? What am I going to teach them in this class? And so like I take, you know, I've got probably five pages in here of notes of all those thoughts. And then today I literally just sat in my chair and just like visualized all the artwork I was going to create. And then now it's just a matter of like doing it, like oh, putting what's in my head onto the computer and drawing it. Um, so, but that's when I get lost, right? Because once I start drawing it, it's like, I can't stop. Like I got to finish yeah. You know, that's just how my body acts. So it'll be all right. It'll be all right. <laughs> it actually, no, it won't be all right. It'll be great. You should all come March 18th, Giuseppe's <laughs> main market. That's right. Ambition must be made to counteract ambition. So, all right. Well, uh, like John said, uh, the next meeting is this Saturday, Giuseppe's, 4 to 6 p.m., uh, RSVP at madisonianrepublicans.com. Um, we've got articles coming out weekly at politics and parenting. You can subscribe, like, share, comment. Um, we appreciate it. And as always, peace and love. <laughs>